Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. So before we get onto this week's episode, I just wanted to tell you that my Parenting in a Pandemic workshop series with two has now finished and it was a huge success. I absolutely loved connecting with those of you that came. Summaries of each of the workshops are on Two's Instagram, which is at Two Clothing. What I really took from the workshops was the power of validating just how challenging this pandemic has been for new parents. In fact, for all parents, there is so much strength in a shared experience and a safe space to process that experience, which is a big part of what we did on the workshops. So thank you so much to the wonderful two for partnering with me to make the workshops happen. Please do check out their spring collection at two.co.uk. It is absolutely gorgeous. There's a pair of floral dungarees and the most amazing yellow raincoat with this brilliant frill down the front that I've got for Rose and we absolutely love. So please do head over to two.co.uk to have a look. Here's this week's episode. Hey everyone, I hope you're well this week. Welcome to this week's episode. As you'll know, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, what we experience in our childhoods unconsciously shapes and determines our entire approach to life as adults. Now, it's so powerful to know this because once we know it, it gives us something really powerful and that is choice. So once we have a choice to become aware of our unconscious beliefs and patterns, where they come from in our childhood, then we can change them. And I find that the most exciting thing in the world because it means that regardless of how you were parented, regardless of what your early experiences were like, you have the power to change how you show up in adulthood, to really become who you always were, which I believe is whole and full of love and infinite potential. And that's what this week's episode is about. So Stephanie Stahl, you might not have heard of her. She is known as Germany's psychotherapist superstar, if there is such a thing. You might not have heard of Steffi because her books haven't been published in the UK yet, but she's written 10 of them. And her latest one is brilliant. It's called The Child in You. It's been a multi-million bestseller in Europe. I think it's been on the bestseller charts for months and it's about to be released in the UK which is why we had this conversation. So this episode is going to teach you what your inner child is, why that's important, why should you care when often we think, oh, that's in the past. Well, this episode is going to tell you how to connect with your childhood experiences if you want to change your adult ones. I'm sure you've experienced this. You've tried to change something and you just keep getting stuck. That is likely because there's something going on on a deeper level 
around a childhood belief or experience that hasn't yet been brought to the surface, been made conscious. So in this episode, we talk about how to actually do that. And the thing that I loved about the book, The Child in You, is that it's really practical. There are some super simple yet transformational ways that you can connect with your childhood experiences to change your adult ones, to change how you're showing up today. I love the episode. I hope that you do too. Here it is. So Steffi, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. I'm really excited to be chatting this morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. So how are you feeling right now? What's going on for you? Well, yes, we escaped from Germany to our holiday home on Tenerife because the situation with uh, COVID and Corona is really... It's tedious in Germany, so and here at least the weather is much better and the measures are less strict here because they're at the time not so much affected as in Germany. So it's cool to be here and having a podcast not in my mother's tongue is always a little bit exciting for me. So, Well, I'm in awe of your language already. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I was reading your book this past week and I'm so excited to bring this episode out because I think, as you know, this podcast is all for mothers. And I just wish, I wish, wish, wish. One of the reasons I do the podcast is I wish that every parent knew how to do the healing work that's in your book. Let's start right at the start because your book is called The Child in You and it's all about how we think that we're adults in our rational mind, going about our lives, parenting, working, but often, probably most prevalently, we are acting out of our inner child, as you call it. So you start off the book saying we should all know our inner child. So why? If someone's not heard of this phrase or if someone's thinking, well, I don't want to think about my childhood, it's not relevant to me today. Why is it so important? Well, the inner child is a metaphor and it stands for our imprints that that we gathered during our upbringing. You know, these imprints deep in our brain, because when we are born, our brain is only developed to 25 percent and for very basic functions like the regulation of hunger and satiety stuff like that. And all higher brain functions are not developed. But there are many millions, millions, billions of possibilities how our synapses can connect to each other. So how mom and dad behave towards us, what feeling they give us if we feel loved and cared, that they really care for us and so on, has a huge impact on how our brain develops. So we gather during our upbringing, deep, deep imprints in our brain. And these are psychological patterns that we carry over into our adulthood. And this progress is usually unconsciously. So we are not really informed about that. But what one has to understand now that these mental patterns that are highly subjectively, by the way, because different parents, different patterns, yes? That is not at all objective, yes? So these very, very subjective patterns we gather, these mental programs, we carry over as adults 
and they can be seen like a lens we look through at the world because they also imprint our self-image and our self-image decides how we perceive ourselves and other people. And that is what psychologists call the inner child. The inner child are all these imprints that we get during our upbringing that shape our brains, so to say, these mental patterns that we receive from our childhood. That is the inner child. It's just a metaphor. And in my approach, I distinguish between the shadow child and the sun child. The shadow child stands for the things that weren't so good with mommy and daddy. And there are no such things like a perfect childhood or perfect parent. So everybody has at least a little, little shadow child within himself. And the sunshine stands for the things that went well with our parents. And most importantly, the sunshine also stands for all the possibilities we have now as adults to shape our attitudes new, to make new behavior, get a different stance toward life, and so on and so on. So as adults, we are not any longer at the mercy of our parents. So the sunshine also stands for all the possibilities we have now as adults. And the third psychological entity in my approach is the inner adult stands for our reasonable thinking, for clear-minded thinking. So we have the shadow child, the inner adult, and the sun child. And these three entities are really enough to explain how psychological problems are rising and for the solution as well. It's very, very simple because what is seemingly so complicated in our adulthood life, but at the end, everything comes down to very, very simple structures. And this was a big breakthrough for me as well. I think when you first kind of hear this term in a child, I remember hearing it maybe a couple of years into my own healing and it felt very complex and I didn't understand it. And I think what I love about particularly your work and some others is that it's very simple What's important to know or what I perceive is really important to know is that your first six years in particular basically imprinted on your subconscious how you feel about yourself and the world. And therefore, if you are struggling with things in your adult life, the only way to really do the root, changing the actual root of that is to look back at those first six years. The challenge is, and I had this in particular, is that I didn't consciously remember I'm sure you get asked that a lot so I'm just thinking about the best way to kind of navigate because there's so much that I want to talk to you about but how does someone if they're thinking well my childhood was perfect and happy thank you very much there's nothing to see here and actually I can't remember it anyway so it can't have anything to do with that I'm feeling overwhelmed or anxious today that is impossible because It is a biological process that our brain is shaped within our whole upbringing. The first six years are very, very important because a lot of shaping takes happen during this time period. So everybody has a somehow shaped brain. So for everybody, the parents or the first caregivers are very, very important. And I want to state one 
thing very clearly. It's not about to blame our parents. That is not my message. It's just if you want to know what are my unconscious psychological patterns, you have to have a look on your childhood because there these imprints took place, you know. That's the reason why it is so important. And if you can hardly remember your childhood, that is always, unfortunately, a sign that it wasn't maybe that happy because then you have repressed a lot of your childhood experiences and the mind has no reason why it should repress happy memories. It's more likely to repress unhappy memories. But if you can hardly remember anything of your childhood, then just think about when your memory starts. At some point, it has to start. Maybe when you're 14, when you're 14 or 12 years old, you have the first memories with your parents. Then think about how they have been when you were 12 years old. And then just imagine when they were like this, when I was 12, how could they have been when I was younger? (laughs) Because usually parents' attitudes and parents' behavior don't change that much over the lifespan. Nobody does so much. You know, we all have our certain characteristics and the most people stay more or less the same. So then just make this little bridge with your memory. Think about how they could have been when I was younger. I think it's such an important point around the purpose of looking back on our childhood, those first six years and looking at the, the patterning is not to blame our parents. And I think one of the most powerful things that I did in my own healing actually was to think about my own parents' childhoods as well. And when I saw how those patterns were kind of being passed down, it just unlocked so much compassion for them because I actually saw how they were doing an incredible job given the upbringings that they had. So I think it's such an important point because it can feel like when we talk about this, if we want to heal and we want to experience life differently, we do have to look back at our childhood and particularly how we were parented, particularly as parents ourselves. Like everyone listening to this podcast is going to be a parent. It can feel like, well, it was really hard for my mum, for my dad. How does someone get over that resistance to even look? That resistance has a lot to do with this conflict of loyalty. So many people feel uh, conflicted when they want to have a more objective look onto their parents because they think, oh, I love them really and they did so much for me. And, you know, and that is actually a very, very important sign that you maybe haven't detached from your parents in a healthy way because that is very important for your adult life that you detach from your parents in a healthy way what does it mean that means of course you can still love your parents but you dare to have your own thoughts and to shape your life the way you want to live and that you don't live your life uh, meeting the expectations of your parents decouple in a healthy way from your parents so There are many adults who didn't really decouple from their parents in a healthy way and still 
often unknowingly live their lives along the expectations of their parents. And these people often feel highly conflicted when they have to step aside and have a little bit more critical look on their parents. Yeah, well, it's such an important point you make, isn't it? Because to take the judgment off it, I think of it as like a map. Like, let's look at what my map was that I was given for life. What was the blueprint that I was given? And what do I want my map to be? It kind of takes it away from me. But until we do that work, we are living from that blueprint. That is undeniable, isn't it? That's where we're living from. Until we do, which you and I are going to get onto, the work to understand what those patterns are, what that blueprint is, what the self-protection strategies are, and we're going to get into that. And then to change them so that we can really be who we actually are, not responding and living from the imprint and the messages and the beliefs that we got about ourselves and the world in our first six years and beyond. And it's simply everything comes down to the self-image and your self-worth. And that is based on our belief systems. It's so easy in the end. I would like to make an example. In my book, I have the example um, of Michael and Sarah. Michael's parents were running a bakery and they had four children. So his parents were overwhelmed and stressed out and they couldn't give little Michael the care and attention he needed. But what did little Michael think? Little Michael didn't think mommy and daddy are totally stressed out and they shouldn't have had four children, but maybe only one. No, that's not the way little children are thinking and feeling. Little Michael thought and felt, I'm not enough. I'm a burden. I'm too much here. And that's the way beliefs come about because little children don't have the capability to have a moral overview, to have a very independent judgment of their parents. Yes, they can do that. They can manage that. So they take everything to themselves. So if daddy is in a bad mood or even aggressive, it's not because daddy is not okay. It's because I'm not okay. And that's how these beliefs come about and they are so important because these beliefs are actually the programming language of our shadow child and the programming language of our self-esteem. Now, little Michael, he grew up with these beliefs, I'm not enough and I'm a burden. And he carries them over unconsciously and unknowingly to his adult life. That is a simple mental program now, the, the lenses he looks through at the world. And when Sarah, his girlfriend, forgets something, what is important to him, and if it's even such a banal thing, like she has forgotten to buy Michael his favorite chips while she went to the grocery, this childhood wound is injured. You know, it's like sold into his childhood wound that he's not enough, that he's a burden, that he's coming up too short. Then his shadow child is triggered unknowingly by Michael and he feels insulted and injured. And because of this injury, he gets mad, becomes angry. That is a very, very common link from being injured to anger. 
Yes, everybody knows that. Yes, when we feel insulted by somebody, we almost immediately start getting angry at this person, you know? What did you say? Whoa, 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 you know? So the same with Michael. His shadow child feels injured because she has forgotten something. Sarah has forgotten something that was important to him. Then immediately he gets mad. And with madness, his consciousness starts. He doesn't even feel that he's injured because it's so quick, this link from injury to madness. And he has no idea that all the thing has anything to do with his childhood. He doesn't reflect at all upon all this stuff. He just feels the madness and the madness leads, of course, to a behavior. And then he starts fighting and bickering. And then they're in the middle of a discussion. And Sarah herself as well, of course, she has also a little shadow child. Her, she was a single child. She had no siblings. And her parents cared a lot for her. But they had very, very clear ideas what is right and what is wrong. So Sarah suffered from very narrow boundaries in her childhood. And her parents far more often criticized her than they praised her. So Sarah's little shadow child is imprinted by beliefs like, I'm not enough, I never can do anything right. So one can easily imagine when Michael starts fighting and reproaches to her, come on, you forgot again, I'm not important to you and blah, blah, blah. Her little shadow child is immediately triggered as well because she gets into this old childhood feeling oh well again there again I'm not enough you know I can't do anything right and so on and she's not the kind of person who's fighting back but she withdraws very offended and starts sulking up to three days you know (laughs) she stops talking to Michael withdraws herself very offended and here starts sulking and They often think about splitting off because they have so many fights. And if they knew about their deep-rooted patterns, it would be easily to solve all this stuff, you know, if they had a consciousness and awareness about what is really going on there undercover, so to say. I love this because when I learn in my own life, I can't remember when I first learned this, that my triggers are my greatest teachers. Well, to start with, I didn't want to hear it because it's easier, isn't it? It's so often easier to be triggered and blame the other person. It's easier. But actually, the big transformations in my life have come from really thinking about when I am triggered, typically in relationships. And I think that's why becoming a parent is such an amazing time to start to do this work, because if anyone's going to trigger you, it's going to be your children. It's life-changing what you've just said. That instead of when you feel that charge, that trigger, reacting, it's such a powerful moment to think, self-reflection, and you talk about that a lot in the book, what's going on for me here? It's so life-changing, and I think, wouldn't it change the world if we could all stop reacting from our triggers, from our wounds, from our programming, and start responding from our adult? I agree 100% because I always say that the self-reflection is a political necessity because, uh, you know, some people downgrade psychology and say that it's something for menopausal women, you know, that 
they start to reflect on themselves. Yeah, yes, yes. That's often an attitude, especially by uh, white men, old men. Yes, yes. This uh, psychology bullshit and so on. But the truth is, it's a political necessity because if everybody in the world would be self-reflected, we had a much, much better world. Because in the example of Sarah and Michael, that is just a love couple, you know, who's fighting. But if you have political reach and power, yes, or if you have a big company, running a company and have many, many employees and so on, the bigger your reach is and the bigger your power is, the more unhappiness you can spread over other people. So the more reflected you are about your inner processes, the more wise you get. And wise people usually act in a way that is good for other people and not bad. So it's really important to reflect yourself, not only to become a happier person, but to become a better person. So far, I think you've painted this fantastic picture of really helping people to understand that we are a product of our programming. There's nothing we can do about that. And even though we think how we are today has nothing to do with our childhood, it is. We're running out of our programming. So I want to move on now to talk about, you call them in the book, self-protection strategies. I would call them adaptations, but I think it's the same thing. So children have some core needs, don't they? You say in the book, there's four, but two that you really talk about consistently in the book is connection and acknowledgement. And if those aren't met, which is kind of impossible to meet those perfectly as a working mother, I would say. May I interrupt you? Because this is a very important message for your listeners I want to give. That is, you don't need to be perfect at all as parents. In psychology, we talk about good enough, good enough mother, good enough father. And to be a good enough mother or to be a good enough father, you just have to do two things. You have to meet good enough <laughs> the needs of your child for attachment. That means that it feels loved and cared for and that it gathers a feeling, oh, to be uh, dependent on somebody is not such a bad thing, you know. It's okay, there are people outside there who really do care for me. That is the first thing. And the second thing is that you also have to meet your child's needs for autonomy and independency. So to support that he can learn and grow up and that he's allowed to have an own will and that he's allowed to feel his own feelings. That doesn't mean that there are no boundaries, far from that. But in the first step, it's okay to feel your feelings. It's okay to have a will, to pronounce a will, because then the child learns relationship is nothing I'm just at the mercy of, but something I can help to shape, you know, so I have an impact on life. I have an impact on people. And that is so important to be capable as an adult to lead your own relationships. Yes, because this is the hotbed for any psychological problems, which are at the end all related to relationships. Any mental problem is a relationship or a relational problem. Yeah. And, you know, in my house, it's so interesting because I talk in an age appropriate way to my girls or to my older girl about some of this stuff in a really age appropriate way. I talk about how 
you know, sometimes when mummy reacts to things, I'm not being a grown-up mummy. Sometimes I'm, you know, reacting to things that happened when I was little. I think I'm doing it all right in an age-appropriate way because I think it's really important to normalise this as well. I totally know that both my girls will come out of their childhoods with some undesirable beliefs about themselves and the world because that's inevitable. But what I really want them to know is that they can change that. And that if something's not working in their life, how to unpack it. We really normalise therapy in my house. If I think about my own childhood, none of this was ever mentioned. I had no idea that all of this healing and holding and freedom and happiness was totally available on the back of doing some work. So yeah, I think that's how I approach it to take the pressure off myself. I kind of think I'm going to mess them up to some extent. I'm doing my best I can, but they will damn well know. <laughs> you know, how to access therapy and healing. And we talk about all different healing modalities in my house really openly. At the end, and I think that is why my book is so very successful. It's much easier than many people think. It's much easier. I think the most important thing you have to understand that all these nasty little beliefs you gathered that are entrenched within you say nothing. And I mean, really nothing about your worth but only about the at least partial problems your parents had while bringing you up, you know, during your childhood. So these beliefs are not at all a certificate for you, but much more a certificate for your parents. So you have to stop to identify to identify to these beliefs, yes? Because mm. when you're identified, when you really think and believe I'm not enough, then this is your reality. Yeah. But this reality, you have to put it on the side to your parents. You shouldn't stick to it, yes? And change your belief systems and make them much more appropriate for your adult life. Yeah, and I think this is why I do the podcast and I do the work I do is because I'm so passionate about parents doing this work themselves. Gosh, imagine if parents in particular, you know, everyone, but particularly parents, because we're the ones imprinting the next generation and the generation after that and after that and after that. I've been writing in Germany. It's not translated yet in English, but I've been writing a book on the subject. Yes, between parents and raising up their children, that they don't pass along their own shadow child to their children. So, yes, the book is only about relationship between parents and children and not about raising or educational, you know, tricks, what you can do to make your child do this or to don't do that. It's just about the relations, this book. And to avoid that you pass your shadow child along to your children. Well, I feel so excited to hear that because I'm seeing, particularly in Europe, a real shift, actually. And it fills me with so much hope and joy because I'm noticing that some of the brilliant books about parenting now are not really about, as you said, the tips and tricks. That's just more control, isn't it? That's more mm -hmm. coming from a shadow child when we try and control our children. But I'm seeing more and more books like that one that you described that actually say the real thing in parenting to do is to look at our own stuff. Yeah. And I feel so excited that that message is, you know, and hopefully this podcast is a small yeah. part of that. I'm getting really excited about it because it's transformational. Yes, because you project your own beliefs to your children. If you have a belief like Michael, I'm not enough. 
then of course you're running the risk to project this belief to your children in which way they have to shine for you for example you know you want to make them much much better than you are so you're way too ambitious you know to support your child that is always the best grade and the best in sport and everything and that it looks good and doesn't put any blame on you you know so it happens easy that you project your own beliefs onto your children and that the children have to compensate it mm. you know? or if you maybe your own parents neglected you a little bit because they were for what reason ever a little bit overburdened so and now you want to compensate that and that could lead at the end that you overprotect your children you know that you are suffocating them with your love or it leads that you are maybe it ends up that you are maybe a little bit better than your own mother but you think you're a really good mother now because you're the two point version of your own mother but still you're far behind a good norm of parenting you know what i mean i think so what i'm hearing you say is that you either make it a little bit better maybe maybe you had a very very bad mother and you know my mother was not really nice and now you make it really better but still because your imprinting was so impressing and that is your reality you're still far yes you make it better than your own mother maybe even much better because you stop beating you don't beat your children yes but still you're very very strict you have maybe very very narrow norms but you think within your system that you're much better but still you're far behind a good norm of parenting that's what i want to say yeah exactly you know? yeah so let's talk about some of these self-protection strategies. So we have this blueprint, we have these beliefs. You've already mentioned some of the really powerful ones that people have, which is I'm not enough, I'm a burden, I need to be perfect. How do some of those adapt? I wonder if you could talk to, I think particularly perfectionism, because that's one I see in loads of the mothers that I talk to. Yeah, it's widely spread. Perfectionism is yeah. a very common uh, self-protection strategy. So can you breakdown if someone is thinking gosh that's me I really struggle with that what beliefs are they likely to be running from that blueprint these self-protection strategies are a behavior that we often already develop in our childhood to get along with our parents so if they give us the feeling I'm not enough you try for example to be a very very good girl you know to get along with your parents that you work unconsciously as a child that you work that your parents love you or at least don't punish you so you early learn to adapt to the needs of your parents and this over adaptation is the reason and the root for many many psychological issues later on in life and many people are striving for perfectionism that means unconsciously they want to compensate their feelings of inferiority this feeling of i'm not okayness this not okayness feeling i'm not okay i'm not enough by meeting everybody's expectations to meet them perfectly because when i'm perfect nobody can criticize me so it's all about to avoid rejection so many people create their lives with a high motive 
of just avoiding rejection. That's what they are striving for. And so they try to be bulletproof and to do everything right and everything perfect so nobody can criticize them. I used to suffer from this, actually, and I've healed it, which is fantastic because I can see both sides. Living from that place of trying to keep myself small and not offend anyone and do everything perfectly, it's so tragic because it's exhausting. It takes so much life force and energy. It also meant that I wasn't really living my own life. I was living my life through the lens of those around me, which meant that I never really, I wasn't living. I was functioning, not living. I wasn't authentic. I wasn't taking any risks. I didn't have any passions. I, it was yes, awful. Uh, striving for perfectionism is very closely linked often to keeping the peace. <laughs> yes. Tell us about that one. That is also a very, very common one. So you just don't come forward with your wishes, with your opinions, yes, because you're always busy to adjust to other people's needs. But this actually burdens your relations because at the end, when you're always coming up too short, because you suppress within a relationship to anybody your own wishes and demands, you feel in the long term uneasy with this person. Yes, because you don't feel free in his presence. And what many people do then is not that they reflect because I'm so submissive and I always try to meet the needs of the other person. That is, it's your problem that you can't open up your mouth because you're much too obedient. But what they do, they project their problem on the other person. He's too dominant. He's overbearing. He never sees what I want. We always do what he wants. So, but that is not fair. Then in your eyes, in your shadow child eyes, the other person becomes more and more an enemy who is stealing your freedom in your personal space. And at the end, the only thing you can do because your feelings cool down for the other person, because he becomes more and more an enemy, you can't like him anymore. And then you cut off the relationship. You, know, you break off. You just go away or block him. That could also be happened to a normal friend. You just don't answer anymore the phone calls or don't answer text messages anymore. You know, you retreat and withdraw yourself, but without coming in any way upfront with your personal issues within this relationship. And then the relationship is buried. You never said a bad word. You know, you never said what's going on within you. And that means at the same time, and that's what I find so completely unfair, the other person has never a chance, never a chance. Because most of the things of your voluntarily obedience were just your shadow child and have nothing to do with the other person that he would be so dominant or overbearing or whatever. It's just your own projection. And that is not fair. And the other person can't have any impact in this game. You know, it's all within your brain. It's all within your head up to the very sad end point of this relationship that you break off that you, you know, don't answer anymore, that you go away. The other person never had a chance. So that is not very fair, I think. I think what's so interesting in that as well, a couple of things coming up for me. One is that chances are that person would have repeated that in the past and will repeat it again in the future unless they heal it. So I think looking at our patterns 
is such a powerful way, isn't it, to start to figure out what are these strategies, these adaptations, and they're all listed in the book. You know, one is peacekeeper, as you described, and the belief around that is I can't speak up. It's not okay to have a voice. You talk about the helper, very linked into the peacekeeper and the perfectionist. You talk about overthinking. Now, this is a fascinating one because I see this particularly in women, this rumination, this overthinking, this worrying what people think. Now, that is clearly, again, another adaptation, isn't it? So if people are starting to think about, okay, how do I identify my own strategy, self-protection strategies, adaptations? How does someone do that? It's quite simple. In the first step for getting to know his own shadow child, you have to find out your beliefs, where mommy and daddy lie, in my deeper inner self, what I believe about me. And then you just have to think, hmm, how do I try to compensate that? I think you come very easily to your self-protection strategies. I mean, being in control is also a very common one, you know, control freaks struggling for power, struggling for power, you know, that you develop a very, very high power motive because you never, never want to be so helpless and at the mercy of somebody else as you have experienced that within your childhood. So that is also a common compensation. And many people engage more than one, you know, we all have a set of self-protection strategies. And one has to say, Actually, they are healthy and normal behavior. I mean, everybody has to adapt to a certain extent to other people and everybody tries to perform well and to avoid criticism or rejection. And everybody has to have a certain power motive and motive for control, of course, of course. It's just the extent how strongly you are performing these self-protection strategies, whether they become a problem or not. Exactly. That's what I did when I first started unpacking a lot of this stuff. It's like looking at my life, you know, what are my beliefs about myself as you describe? And I think sometimes in the therapeutic world, particularly with the massive literature and hundreds of different therapies available, it can feel quite complex. And I love how you say it's simple because in my experience, Being simple and easy are different. I think it is simple. I think it's not easy because you have to feel some of those feelings and there can be grief involved. And so it's not easy, but it is simple, I think, just to look at, okay, what are my beliefs about myself and the world? How do those beliefs impact my behavior? And how would I want my behavior to be? So can you talk about catch and release, which is a really, really, again, simple that I love, technique that you use for when someone notices. I love it. I love it. Actually, I would. I wanted that they translated it to catch yourself and switch, but they. Oh yeah, catch and switch. Yeah. And release. So I will use my term of catch yourself and switch. That is the basic therapeutic intervention that I invented somehow because I think when you do that, that is almost curable. And I know from so many people, they told me, you know, with catch yourself and switch, I really cured myself. You know, I healed my shadow child because it's so simple. The only thing you have to do during your everyday life, you have to be aware when you're slipping into the mode of your shadow child. Yes, you have to catch yourself. So Michael, for example, he has to recognize when he's 
shadow child is triggered because Sarah has forgotten something that was important to him. So he has to build up this awareness and then he has to catch himself. He has to realize it, recognize it, because if he doesn't recognize it, the whole program starts without his consciousness. But when he is aware, he can stop himself in the right time because when the feelings are already too strong, then your reason is blocked. So you have to catch yourself in an early state, early state before the anger is too big, you know, or the desperation is too deep, you know. So he has to catch himself and then he switches to his adult eye, to his inner adult, the seat of reason, or he can even make an upgrade and switch to a sun child, but at least to his inner adult. And then he steps one step aside of himself. That is originally the foundation of self-reflection, that you step aside and look onto yourself from the outside. And then he can see, oh, my shadow child was triggered right now because Sarah has forgotten to buy my favorite chips. And then he has a good chance to regulate himself by thinking, for example, hmm, does it really mean if she has forgotten this bag of chips that she doesn't love you, that she doesn't care for you at all? And then Michael easily comes to the conclusion, no, of course not. She has just forgotten to buy it because Sarah is not perfect. Neither are you perfect. And it says, but really nothing about your worth, your worth you have for Sarah. So he can regulate himself early enough and behave like a normal person and say, okay, <laughs> darling, okay, it's not so bad. It's okay. I eat, I eat peanuts this evening or whatever, you know. Or I renounce completely is anyway better for my body weight or whatever. You know, he can behave and react in a normal way. And this switch or catch yourself and release is the basic technique of personal development and change. I think what's so important, what is really important for me to understand, the point that you just made brilliantly with Michael, is that awareness is so much of the job to do. Because when you are aware, you can't change what you're not aware of. That's it. So I feel like the message and the example you just gave, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But it's so profound and life-changing because actually, if we are aware of those programs, of our beliefs, of what's triggering us, the awareness itself because I've had experience of this where I've become aware of something and, you know, the switch hasn't been quite been there yet. But the more times it happens, the awareness itself moves me on because yes, it becomes yes. uncomfortable. I'm like, it's so uncomfortable to watch myself playing out these patterns. Yes. And the more you practice this, the shadow child will show up less often, less and less often. It will show up at all because what you're doing that is what we call neuroplasticity, rightly pronounced. You know what I mean? That you form, you make a new pathways within your brain. So you start connecting, reconnecting some synapses new within your brain. So this old behavior fades out and fades out. A new behavior, new attitudes, new belief can settle deeply into your brain. And that's the beauty of it. And what I like about this concept is that you have only to get 
the central theme, the gist of your childhood. You don't have to work through every injury you suffered from, through every situation again and again to work through and work through and work through. And here said mommy this and daddy this and, 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 and in 100 sessions of psychotherapy. No, you just have to get the central theme. If your central theme was like Michael, I was a little bit neglected because my parents were overly stressed out and therefore I gained these beliefs, which my parents actually didn't want that I'm suffering from this belief, but that just happens. It just happens because when I was a child, I had to get an idea what's going on out there in the world. And my idea was I am not enough. Then you just have to care for this. That's all. I know that it works because I've invented this method through my work as a psychotherapist. And meanwhile, millions and millions of people have practiced it. And they all tell me, all right, on Amazon or wherever, it really works. I always say it's do-it-yourself psychotherapy for all normally disturbed person. Normally disturbed. The average neurotic, you know, can really... <laughs> and make do-it-yourself psychotherapy with this book, step-by-step, step, because I take the readers by the hand and say step one, step two, step three. That's your diagnosis. That's your shadow child. And now I show you step one, step two, step three, how you get out of this program and get to your son child. What's your shadow child? Oh, my shadow child is actually had very, very loving parents, very loving, but my mother was the oldest of nine children. And when she was 11, the Second World War started. So somehow she had to function. And she struggled a little bit with dealing with weak feelings within herself because there was no room and time, you know. When she was a child, you know, with weak feelings like, I'm feeling sad, I'm anxious and that. And when I felt sad or anxious as a child, she was a little bit helpless. So I developed the belief I have to be strong. And crying is a shame, something like that. So that was my belief, yes. How did that play out in your life? It played out that I had to learn a little bit to stand by my, you know, shortcomings or failures or whatever. But since I reflect in my life, and that is the reason why I have chosen this study of psychology, I could work it out quite easily. And as I say, in the whole, my parents were very loving and careful, so the damage was not too big. <laughs> we're coming to the end, but I don't want to finish the conversation without talking about the sun child. You yeah. mentioned it at the start, you said there's three parts to your model of self-healing. One is the shadow child, which we talked about a lot. And I think that's the right thing, because I think it's vital, vital, vital. We talked about the adult, which is when you can do that reflection and almost yeah. standing back and seeing the shadow child, like you described with Michael brilliantly. But the third is sun child. So what is the sun child and how does that interact The sun child is a target state, yes? It's a clear vision of your healing. So because it's not so easy to give up an old program because you have identified a life long with this old program and if you switch it off, you say, and who I am now, <laughs> nothing is left over from me, you know. So you have to have a clear vision of the target state and that is the sunshine and the sunshine stands for your strengths, 
for your resources, for your self-reflection strategies, because we come from self-protection to self-reflection strategies. And above all, it stands for your new beliefs. Because what you have to do is to change your old beliefs, your dysfunctional beliefs, into functional beliefs. For example, if you're Michael, I'm not enough, the new belief could be I'm enough. It's much more appropriate uh, for your adult life. But the new beliefs have to be formed in a way that at least the adult I can give its approval. You know, because if you think, no, that is too much for me, then it won't work. So you can create them in the way it works for you. For example, I'm enough for my children or I'm enough for my friend or I'm enough for my parents or whatever. You know, you just break them down a little bit because you have to agree to them. Otherwise, they won't work. For example, if quite a few women have this belief, I'm ugly, and if they would create a new belief, I'm beautiful, they say, <laughs> come on, that is really complete, you know, they won't work. But if they create a belief, I'm beautiful enough, you know, that sounds different. That has also this little humor, I'm beautiful enough, what, you know? um, so you have to new beliefs that you can really agree to them. And then you have to play with them because the sunshine likes playing than working. <laughs> For example, you go into a beautiful situation, these beliefs are already realistic. For example, when you have a gathering with friends, with close friends, you're sitting there, you know, you're chatting, you're eating something very delicious, or when you're at the beach or in the forest for hiking with your dog or whatever, you know, you go with all your senses in a very beautiful situation. And go really into it and feel, feel really deeply inwardly how good it feels. And then you can imagine, for example, your most beloved human being. Yes, you're a very, very nice person. Maybe your best friend is standing behind you and tells you with a very nice and soft voice your new beliefs. Hey, Michael, you're enough. You're good as you are. You are okay. So that... It won't stay only just all so cognitive, so mental, but you have to feel it, you know? And the more often you practice that, yes, and you practice this, and the more often you do that, and the more often during your everyday life, you remember, oh, there, my shadow child, and you go into this inner state, the more often the shadow child will show up in your life. And then you can start to practice your self-reflection strategies. For example, you decided instead of keeping the peace and never showing what I want and never telling anybody if he had hurt me or something, I tried to talk instead, you know, to open my mouth, you know, and I just start to train this, you know like sport or like a new instrument or new language, you know, it needs a little bit of rehearsal. And you start to rehearse these new strategies, these self-reflection strategies, then you will gather new experiences. And what I know from so, so many people who had been my clients, whatever, 
they tell me, oh my gosh, I didn't know that it is so easy. And the people react so positively. Yes, sure, because it's so much easier to deal with a person where you know where she or he stands. You know, I'm, for example, I'm a little bit afraid. I don't want to have people as closer friends who are always trying to keep the peace because I know that will fire backwards. You know, when they always say yes, when they mean no, that comes down on me. They won't like me sooner or later, not anymore, because, you know, they think, they imagine with their shadow child eyes that I'm so big, you know, and that I'm so dominant because they keep themselves small. So I feel much, much safer and easier and more relaxed with people where I know when something's going wrong, they open up their mouth or they tell me what they want and what they don't want. So it's much easier to deal with these persons. Yeah, for sure. Being around healed, true adults who are direct and honest. It's very rare in my experience and it's unbelievably refreshing. It's amazing. Well, fantastic. I mean, we have covered so much and I've absolutely loved it, but I think the thing that I really, really take away from your work and the book in particular is just the importance of that self-reflection, that all healing and all change really is in our ability to stand back from our habitual reactions, which come from, which you so brilliantly describe, and we've talked about a lot, haven't we, come from that inner child, come from those first six years. So thank you. It's been fantastic. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Always remember you're a shining star from day one. (laughs) What a good belief. What a good new belief that someone could adopt. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you too. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. 
You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon. <laughs>